Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. And we certainly have a leader with us today. Bonnie McKerney is a principal at Malpe Elementary School in the Monroe School District. But we're not going to talk about what she does, but rather we're going to talk about teachers as this is going to be Teacher Appreciation Week coming up. Principal Bonnie McKerney, welcome. Thanks for being here this morning. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for having me. I'm glad to have you here uh, to share, your, I don't know, an inside perspective on what teachers do for us. And I say us, it's not just the kids that are in school that teachers are helping. They're really, you know, helping society. And so we're all part of that. It's us. Uh, this week, starting tomorrow, May 1st through the 5th, is Teacher Appreciation Week, and I thought maybe a principal's insight could teach us all a thing or two uh, about, you know, what really goes on inside a school, in a public school at that, I think. I'm, yes, I'm happy to share about that. First of all, teachers are my heroes. They work long, long hours. So typically, their day begins before the sun is up. They're generally in the classroom, they're getting things ready, trying to get prepared, running copies, if the copy machine is working, (laughs) that's always a a trick. Um, Getting all ready for our kids and for the buses when they roll in. The buses come, the kids arrive, there's action everywhere. No moments to pause. Once the kids come, we are on the job. So it's not just the six hours and then they go home and put their feet up. Far from that. I like why you said there's no pause. There's, there's no, no stopping the action. I, I don't <laughs> think no a lot pause. of people realize. So that really is the case, isn't it? That's, when people talk yep. about that metaphor of uh, herding cats, you know, because there's there's one going this way, there's one going that yes. way. When you get that one back, well, there's another one going this way. And so, like, the first of the day, if they don't have a meeting before school, they Which have to they go might. out. They have to go out and some of them are doing bus duty. Some of them are doing like there's a recess duty. Yes, recess duty. Some of them are meeting um, for kids with needs or students who have a special program. Teachers are busy doing many things, grabbing books from the library if they need a book for that day. Unlike other jobs, there isn't a moment to pause. You go from the beginning of the day until the kids are on the bus and there are no moments. There's a quick lunch, maybe a bathroom break. That's about it. But how about at that lunch? Aren't they also, sometimes they have a responsibility at lunch time, don't they? Sometimes they do. Often they're also running copies then or calling parents or catching an email because emails float in during the day. They often don't have time to grab that until they take a moment at lunch. Now that is, I think this first thing we've hit on, this busyness is going to, if people really stop and think about it, people that work in an office, people that maybe work construction and work outside, you can stand up once in a while and stretch. You can walk over to somebody at the other desk and go, man, that was some game last night, wasn't it? The teachers don't have that opportunity. They're surrounded by uh, 25 to 30 kids that are not their person to just chat with. Right, right. They're in charge of these kiddos and the school of kiddos. They're <laughs> they're working for all the kids and all the adults. Um, rarely do we have time to pause and have a conversation, a personal conversation. 
Sometimes once the buses are gone, we do, but generally it's all about the kids and what we're doing that day. And so how about, I don't know how I can, we can talk about the actual instruction and teaching and what that's like if people don't understand it. For for different ages, that's completely different, I mean, but how about the, uh, you know, the getting together with colleagues, other teachers, administration, and with meetings and say, okay, here's what worked today, here's what didn't, or... Because in business, you can stop and schedule those meetings and say, we've got to figure out how to fix problem A. They have a meeting, they decide, and they change something. It doesn't really happen that quick or easily in a school setting because it's an institution. It's got all these... uh, parameters you have to go through and and hurdles to jump. Yes, that's right. We live and die by the minute. And often we don't have the minute to have conversation. Many teachers meet on their own time in professional learning communities. They'll get together or they'll meet during their lunch break or during a recess break or when they're on duty. They'll meet to have conversation about what their next steps are or what might need to happen. They're busy, busy, busy. They're people who love being busy and love seeing the energy of kids. <laughs> they better be, it sounds like. They, they better love that uh, activity. Oh, how about, so uh, we talked about showing up early and, and how long it takes. Uh, teachers, almost all of them, end up then taking their day home and working at home for some part of it, right? Unless they actually stay at that school building and do all those correcting and writing out to next day's lesson or the next week's, right? That's right. I think kids sometimes think we live in the closet because they leave and arrive and we're there both times. Teachers drag home a lot of things to do. If they don't stay in the classroom to cut out things or copy things or correct, then they're taking it home. And that includes with reporting when they're doing assessments. They're often taking those home with them so that they can make sure that they know where each and every child is at any given time. I liked how you, something you just said about uh, cutting things out made me think, in an elementary school, a classroom is a big room compared to someone who might have a uh, a cubby here that's listening right. in the business industry or their own office, but they actually are also in charge of what's on the walls and the, they decorate that and they have to put up posters and the ABCs or whatever might be interesting or books we're learning this week and there's no staff that comes in and does that for them at night. Each teacher has to take care of their own room. Yes. This starts before the school year starts even, right? Yes. Teachers often come into school starting early August. Mm. They start trickling in to set up their classrooms, get their room ready, put things on the wall, start preparing things. The younger the student, the more of that preparation is needed. So as students are a little bit older, they'll help to support putting things on the wall. But when they're little, it's all teacher-directed. Well, that is it. We're talking with Bonnie McCurney today. She is an elementary school teacher in the Monroe School District. It's Teacher Appreciation Week coming up, and... I think every week should be Teacher Appreciation Week. A kid should realize it's hard to say, oh, you're doing a great job for me. But some kids probably come back once they get to junior high and high school and maybe find themselves on an elementary school campus and say, you know what, Teacher A or B, you were really cool. (laughs) We often have students come back looking for teachers that they've had. Maybe they're graduating. Maybe they're in college. They'll write a letter to a college to a teacher that they've had in elementary school. 
I received a letter from a student at the University of Washington in the Husky Marching Band. I had had that student in sixth grade, and I kept saying I was talking up the Husky Marching Band, and sure enough, there's where she is. So we do see the fruits of our labor, but not often right away. Sometimes it takes a few years. Wow, that is, that's a cool story. So that is neat that a teacher hears that kind of feedback, but I think this week people should, not just those kids, but take time. The students, uh, people that have students in class, but just the parents around the neighborhood, maybe go drop by their local school or the office at least and say, hey, uh, here's a note I wrote and hand it, put it on the staff room for the teachers or something like that. That goes a long way. Does it really? That goes a long way. Teachers often hear if there's something that might have been missed, but not so often all the great things that they do every day. And hearing a positive note, receiving an email, having a student write a card of thanks, that's worth the entire day. And I think the more we can do that to support our teachers and celebrate our teachers and just edify the fact of of how hard they work and what they bring to their job every single day is so important. Well, that's a cool thing. I'm glad you said that. Um, Because there are a lot of things we only hear about teachers, you know, in the news cycle, let's say, when it's kind of bad news. Like, oh, this uh, you know, there's school trouble again. I mean, we voted, I think, to reduce class size in this state, and then it somehow got rescinded or put on hold mm-hmm. or put back. Um, let me t- talk about that. S- class sizes, the number of mm-hmm. students. I mean, how does that make the uh, the day different for a teacher? Mm-hmm. Whether they're, I, I don't know, what would be ideal in, in like the youngest kindergarten through third grade? Would that be in the teens? Oh, ideally, I think something? that would be great. Reality doesn't yeah. play out that way. Um, what it means to classrooms and kids, often there's not enough space when classes get too full. So it's hard to maneuver. It's hard to get around, get in and out of spaces and support kids. It also means materials. Um, do we have enough materials? Do we have enough lunch tables? Do we have enough desks and chairs? So it's those tangible things. And then just sheer numbers. Trying to find a place to put 26 five-year-olds can be a challenge. Any examples of that? I mean, uh, what's the, I well, don't know what kind of horror stories a principal at an elementary school can have over the years, but... Uh, well, our kindergarten lines sometimes are so long that you can't see the front to the back. So we have had experiences where little ones have been lost and just turned up in a different spot in a different place. And there we were trying to find out where they belonged, and they don't always know. So that's some of the things that can happen. (laughs) Well, they don't know that they're lost, I suppose. They don't know they're lost, and they also don't know their teacher's name. They'll say teacher. That's right. So the first, I'm thinking that's the first week, but how long does that actually go on? Oh, it's a while. Oh, no. For our littles, it's a while. Probably through December or so. Um, Same with the bus. They don't always know. They might know their first name, but maybe not their first and last name. So then you're trying to place them on a bus, but you don't know their name. Um, They have cards now that they wear that we've put on them, but those are kind of the hurdles, getting them through the lunch line. Never have been through a lunch line, never have had to choose different foods, much less carry a tray or open a milk carton. Okay, so these little things you're talking about, 
are things that I don't think parents um, realize their teacher is teaching them. Yes. Not just one and one is two, A, B, C, D. They are teaching them how to be a human being, how to interact in a social, new social setting they've never been in, how to sit quietly and take turns in a circle, um, where as home, at home they've been used to, I just do what I want, my mom lets me have this, I sit wherever I want, or I mean, I eat whatever I want, when I want. Right. That's a part of teaching that, gosh, a lot of people don't stop and realize is a big part of their day. It's a big part of their day. That lifelong learning and teaching the whole child how to sit down in a group of people, how to respond, how to walk in a line, how to say please and thank you, what to do with my lunch when I'm done. There's no mom or dad there to pick it up and put it in the trash. So now they have to learn about recycling and they have to learn about putting things away and what do I do if I spill? There are so many things that go into a day of an educator beyond academics. Many, yeah. many things. Wow. And now in public schools, you know, we talked about how many are in a classroom and the growing size inhibits. Each time there's an extra kid over a certain size, it's a little tougher and a little tougher. In public school, you, every child has a right to an education. You can't just kick them out because they're, I don't know, uh, disruptive. But sometimes there are students who are disruptive, and that falls under a variety of classifications. But uh, you know, that mix things up. Any examples of what can happen without naming names and how bad things can get that other parents listening might not realize, ah, oh, that happens in my school? I doubt it. Well, our job is to support all kids. And because we support all kids, we all didn't walk at the same time. We all didn't talk at the same time. So our kids coming into school come with a variety of needs. Sometimes the need is sensory. They struggle with sensory. Sometimes kiddos struggle with conversation. They need speech support. Sometimes it's behavior. They struggle to sit down. They struggle to follow an adult's request. All of those things are part of what we do in public education and with varying degrees of support. So many teachers in response to supporting all students, work very hard at trying to figure out what that support looks like and how we do support kids. Um, I don't think listeners might realize just how often a kid, especially we're talking elementary school here with Bonnie McKerney, um, might just fall out of a chair <laughs> every day, uh, uh, might tie their own shoelaces to the, their, the desk without realizing it and then get up to walk away. Or, or that a six- or seven-year-old may start a sentence, walk up to their teacher and say, I don't feel very, and yes. then and throw up. Throw up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How, I mean, these things happen all the time, they once happen in a while. They the happen time, all the time, every day. There are stories every day of kids doing the darndest things. Yeah. And you can either be upset with it or you can take joy in it. And our job then is to teach them the consequence of doing some of these things. We do have a health room that is busy all the time. Um, we're talking with uh, Bonnie McKerney from Malpe Elementary. It's Teacher Appreciation Week coming up, and uh, people ought to stop by, like we said. You don't have Please to stop by. Do. Phone, uh, I don't know, do teachers... Send a note. Send a note. Write a little something in the mail. Send an email. Yeah. Yes. Yes, just show your appreciation. What are the uh, state of PTA, what we called it when I was younger and back in school? Is it PTO now, parent-teacher well, organization? What's the state of that and the support they actually help teachers or the 
each individual school? How do those operate? Because people listening might say, yeah, I should be more involved. Maybe that's the avenue. You would have to check with your local school to see which organization your school is aligned with. It could be PTA, it could be PTO. Either one are there for support in the schools. What we're finding is those organizations are changing. It used to be it was the big meetings once a month and everybody came. People are busy now. They have all kinds of things going on. Job schedules yeah. aren't yeah. just eight to five. And both, both parents work almost both all the time. Both parents work. Yes, they do. So one thing that we've done is um, texting. So we have texting. We have four meetings a year, and that has increased our numbers a lot. Just giving alternatives to the traditional meeting, that has helped a lot. But get involved with your PTO. They're supporting kids. They're supporting the programs. They are often raising money for schools. They are there for your kids. What is it that uh, an individual school might need money for? This is something I bet a lot of taxpayers don't sit and realize they just want more money because they think they want more cash. I mean... Right, those parking lots are full of Cadillacs and uh, and Mercedes Benz, right? right That's right. why they want more money. Yes, of course. Why, um, why does a PTO have to raise money? Sure, playground equipment is a big one that PTO or PTA raises money for. They don't last forever, and the joy that kids receive at recess—kids need to be out running around. Recess is a great opportunity for that. They can use that for equipment. We right now are trying to raise some money for technology. So more technology, Chromebooks actually, is what what we're looking into. Playground equipment, jump ropes, hula hoops, those kinds of things. The things that are expendable that we need to replace. So you go through things every year. Every year. Yeah. You're right. That can't be written into a budget that is no. satisfied because... <laughs> Every year you yeah. need more. Wow. Yeah. Um, let me talk about, uh, oh, I don't know, the the way teachers have to keep up with... So you mentioned technology mm-hmm. that you'd like to see more of in class. Um, but they have to, do they have to keep taking classes to keep their certification? And do they, they do. pay for those things? Is that part of like state law or I don't there know? There is a law. They have to keep up. Um, with professional learning. That can be provided by the school district. It can also be provided outside the school district. If it's outside the school district, like in a local ESD, Educational Service District, often there is a fee to that. The learning happens every year. There are new things to learn every year. And in order to keep current, that's part of the job we do as well. So while we're out, say, the end of June, Teachers are often learning through July, even August, before they start back up in September. Yeah. And uh, and while you mentioned July and August, uh, they don't really get paid. for People think they get paid for nine months of work. Well, they only get paid for when they, the 180 days or whatever, yes. 182, it gets spread out maybe all year. But it does. They don't. This is something people never remember. You know, oh, they get so much time off. Well, they don't get paid for that. They don't. They don't get paid for that. And even bigger than that, they're always planning for the next group of kids throughout their summer. They don't really have time off in the way that people think that they might. They're always working to the next degree. They're working in the new learning. They're always working forward. And uh, while we're on sort of I don't know, technology. I can remember, this is how old I am, um, 
typing was like an elective in high school to learn actually where to put your fingers on a keyboard. This has to be taught because so many parents have given their kids phones and they can use them as technology type. And I don't know how down to ages you must see third graders, second graders with them. And teachers have to know how to teach them correctly, I suppose, now too, right? As right. When do they start teaching keyboarding and technology? How young is that done it these It depends days? on what district you're in. Some of our five-year-olds are actually learning home row. It just depends where you're at with that. Okay, so now let me interrupt. I hate to sure. interrupt my guests, but if, if a primary educators have to go to a computer lab or something and teach 15 to 25 kids at the same time, they can't all be learning and typing correctly because they can't spell yet. How do you run a password right. that is not a real word? And I mean, they got to be running around back and forth. And every computer, anybody who works on a computer knows, oh, this isn't working right right now. To do that with 20 kids at the same time. That's a challenge, more <laughs> than a challenge. So sometimes you can get your older students to support the younger ones. It's definitely an investment of time. <laughs> definitely. Our younger kids soon will get Chromebooks that swipe, so there won't be typing huh. that is required. And that is what is coming our direction. But again, there's a learning curve, knowing how to use it, knowing what you want to use it for. Um, okay, I got a few more subjects before we run out of time, Bonnie. We've got about five or six minutes left. Uh, parents, okay? Parents are great. They, they want their kids to learn. That's why they're in school. But some teachers have to butt heads with parents once in a while. How, as a, let's say, a, a gentle tip here to parents that don't realize that their little Jason or Jessica isn't the angel in school that, that they are at home, when they get a note from a teacher or a principal or, you know, a phone call, it's pretty serious. I mean, teachers, they don't want to have to bring a parent in for discipline action or failure of academics. I mean... How, how should a parent really expect the, that conversation to go, oh, I got a note from your parent, uh, from the teacher? I think always seek to understand. Ask the questions before making assumptions. Ah, find the perspective that the teacher's coming from. Yes, and talk to the teacher before talking to another person. Sometimes I'll have parents in my office I don't know the situation. I wasn't the teacher. So the question always is, have you spoken with the teacher? <laughs> Start with the teacher. They're on the front lines. And they really want, they're there to help. I mean, that, Absolutely. They want, let's, let's move to that for our last bit. Because why are teachers there? They really do love children. They love seeing kids learn. I mean, there's some point when, at whatever age, whether it's academics or social learning, that, that a kid all of a sudden gets it, you know, the light right. goes, I mean, what is it about teachers that, that keeps them doing this year after year, 30 years in a row sometimes that... I know it's the I get it moment, but I also think it's bigger than that. We touch lives, whether we see it or we don't. We touch lives and those lives are our next best generation. So I think that really keeps people invested. That keeps them coming back because they know they make a difference. Even maybe not see it today, maybe not see it for 10 years, but you know you're making a difference. Wow, that's pretty cool. They, they, is, it, is it tangible? I mean, we're touching lives. I mean... <laughs> when the student comes back oh. 
and says... We did say that before, didn't we? Yeah. I made it into the UW. Or look at me, I got the job I always wanted. Or I'm traveling to Europe because you told me a story when you had been in Europe. Those are the moments you know you have touched a life. And you can see it time and time again. Cool. Um, Now, how about some of the... We talked to parents uh, a minute ago... How about the support they can do? They can also touch these lives. Are there ways parents can get involved in the school? They can't, maybe some are good, maybe volunteers, teachers, especially at elementary, still oh, like in-classroom volunteers, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Is every parent cut out to that? They have to listen to the teacher's instructions as well, right, if you want to Often. volunteer in a classroom? Often. Most any parent can come in and listen to kids read. Most any parent can do that. They don't need to know the new math vocabulary to do that. They don't need to know any of the specifics of the science lesson, but they certainly can come in and sit and read with the child. Just let the child know that someone else cares about them. Just so even that, that's cool. That's a volunteer opportunity. Absolutely. And, and to let kids read because parent uh, teachers, I think you mentioned assessment they're doing. They have to pull kids almost all the time now with the amount of uh, grades and <laughs> and accountability that's required and forms to fill out. They have to test kids all the time. That's often one kid at a time. So right. somebody has to be with the kids. <laughs> right, right. So a volunteer, a parent can just come in and volunteer say, and ask, how about this? As we run out of time, stop by the school and ask, what what can I do to help support the school, this teacher? Support? What would you like to uh, finish with today, Bonnie? We're, we're talking and we're going to wrap up here talking about Teacher Appreciation Week coming up. It's this week, folks. So, uh, And Bonnie McKerney is the uh, principal at Maltby Elementary School in Monroe School District. What I are some tips? What do you want to celebrate your teachers? Be joyful that they have chosen to do this profession. Celebrate your kids. Be glad that they are with people who know what to do and are professionals and know that teachers make a difference every single day. Well, I really I can't top that. That's a great way to finish. Thank you so much. We've been talking to the principal at Maltby Elementary, Bonnie McKerney. Thank you, Bonnie, for coming in and uh, talking about what heroes teachers are. I think you said that right up front, that they are heroes. And we're heading into Teacher Appreciation Week. I appreciate your coming in today and sharing with us. Thank you so much. thank you so much. All right, folks listening out there, reach out to a teacher in your local school this week and give them some loving. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels. The thing most of us seem to have not been taught early in life is about handling money and finances. We can't correct all that this morning, but we're going to give it a good try in meeting two financial specialists. First up is Gary Stone. Gary's devoted 25 years to researching, analyzing, and successfully investing in stock markets, and the result is his book, Blueprint to Wealth. He's here now to share some highlights. Gary Stone, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. It's my pleasure, Kate. I really appreciate uh, your work, your passion, I would say, because you have really invested, if you will, your life into this whole field of finances, which uh, I think many of us feel really uh, stymied by and, and even heavily burdened. So I am really excited to be able to learn more from your new book, Blueprint to Wealth, Financial Freedom in 15 Minutes a Week. Is that really possible? It is absolutely possible. In fact, it can, it can even be done in less time than that. 
Okay, well, <laughs> let's start with the 15. That seems to be certainly manageable. Uh, if we can whittle that down eventually, or maybe have you found that people want to actually invest more of themselves and their time into doing this because they, they really get a good handle on it? Well, well, they do. And, uh, you know, it, it actually, for people who get uh, who actually get into investing and want to and have the inclination to want to do better and, and learn all about investing, it actually can, can consume you. I know when I started in this field some 25 years ago, I mean, I had to spend hours a day doing this, learning the whole ambit of, of what's involved and what can be involved because it's such a wide field. And I guess all that research and experience, I've now been able to just hone that down to a maximum of 15 minutes a week. And in fact, it actually takes me far less than that now to manage my money. So how do we get started? Of course, there's first the desire, right? But then what do we do? Well, for me, the desire should be there in most people. I think, but it's amazing how apathetic or lazy or, or maybe just confused people are by, by the huge amount of information there is that they, they kind of just get caught like rabbit in the headlights and they, they just palm it off to somebody else and they, they think it will be taken care of in an employer-sponsored 401k or mutual funds or whatever it might be and all by an investment advisor, which is, which is a big option. Nearly two-thirds of Americans use investment advisors. And then they, they find out when they get to retirement that they don't have enough. And the stats are showing that some 80% of Americans will retire so with insufficient funds to last in their retirement years. So well, that's the motivation, if you like. So, so what do they do about it? Well, it requires some reading, some research. What I've tried to do is distill it down into, first of all, explaining to people that the status quo, that of of investing in active mutual funds or mutual funds or target date funds or balanced funds or diversified funds, they all go under different names. It's just not going to cut it. But there is an avenue, if you like, a strategy pathway that is is very simple to execute, which is going to put the probabilities heavily in your favor of doing far better than your employer-sponsored 401ks or mutual funds or wherever your money might be by just investing in the stock market index. It, It solves the risk problem and it solves the performance problem. So one clarification that I feel compelled to make is in terms of investing some of our income into the 401 deferred interest plans. So we do this because we think it's a great tax savings, but are you saying, no, that is not the pathway to take? It certainly is to use the the deferred tax, either through a traditional or a Roth 401k or, or IRA, that is definitely the way to go because you're getting the money that you otherwise would have paid and taxed to the government working for you for all those years. So that is the vehicle through which it should be done. But it's just how you invest and what you invest in is what kills people's retirement nest eggs. And it does that through two major avenues. One is the huge amount of fees they pay through their employer-sponsored 401ks. And that puts a major handbrake on their returns over the years. And the other one is that for long-term, multi-decade investing, people's funds are diversified too much. There's too much caution being taken when they are not totally risky paths, but the paths that take a little bit more risk that are still, still not going to go to zero. They're still going to be around that will perform far, far better. And that's the concept of what you've heard people like Warren Buffett and, and another person who started Vanguard, uh, John Bogle, talk about index investing. And that's really what my book gets to the heart of, of how to reduce fees, how to get far better returns by investing in the index, and you know, just spending a few minutes a week actually achieving that. 
So it is possible by just taking that interest, our own personal interest in this, because it is our future, and being able to live more comfortably in our advanced years, is to take that time and just, even if it is that, I'm sure we can carve out fifteen minutes, right? And you're saying we can learn this. We absolutely can learn it, and you know, we can cut through the jargon and all the information that's out there, and the misinformation that's out there. And, and just get it down to even less, you know, 15 minutes a quarter or an hour a year once you've actually decided on your strategy. Yeah, I think people have to understand that even though they don't see, them as, they see themselves as an investor, if you are working and you're contributing to an employer-sponsored 401k, you are an investor. And you need to take responsibility for being that investor and do the best you can. And I'm talking about over you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, hundreds of thousands of dollars difference by just cutting fees a little bit and by being less diversified a little bit, and that turns into 1% or 2 or 3% compounded and a better return. And that's what turns into hundreds of thousands of dollars better off, being better off in retirement and ha- therefore having a more comfortable retirement when we get there. And I think these days we know we need to do something because perhaps we were a bit complacent even a decade or so ago thinking there's Social Security, but we sure know that that's on very wobbly ground, isn't it? There is. There's so much talk about it that you know, it would be prudent not to rely on, want to rely on Social Security by the time you retire. And you know, the, the book, the title of the book is Blueprint to Wealth, Financial Freedom. 15 minutes a week. And the financial freedom bit is a very simple definition I give, and that is a comfortable and independent retirement. And rather than planning to rely on Social Security, rather do some small things now, many years in advance, so that you won't have to rely on Social Security or even family. You'll be independent to be able to spend the money how you want to on yourself, or even, you know, if you have philanthropic uh, plans, to spend it on other people as well that might be more needy than what you see yourself as. You have a website, Gary, which I think is a great tool along with using your book because you have what I call an experience we can have, a following a hypothetical person doing their investing. And I think that that can be motivation for us or at least explain to us what we're going to be in store for. That's absolutely right, Kate. So what in the book, I've actually mentored a hypothetical person, a fictitious character whose name is Ian, and he asks lots of uh, dumb questions as well as some very good questions. And I take him through explaining to him why we should be doing this and then how to do it in some detail. And whilst Ian is a hypothetical person, the money that we are investing with on the website and that people can follow is actually real money. So it's a real money portfolio that is following the strategies that have been spoken about and discussed and the, you know, the pointy end, if you like, that you will come to if you read the book and how to do it yourself. So we're actually executing those, that strategy with real money. And we have been doing that for since the beginning of 2016, so some 15 months into the process now. It, and the strategy is doing, as the research shows, it's outperforming the stock market and it's also outperforming the Vanguard balanced fund by, by quite some margin. What seems really clear to me is that what we have an opportunity to do is 
thus enroll in our own class, which we can do at our own time and really uh, for 15 minutes a week. And certainly we can etch out that time. But we're able to take this course, which we never were able to do or didn't think we could do when we were going to school, whether it was college or advanced classes. I think this is an invaluable opportunity. That's a fantastic way of putting it. I've done quite a few interviews over the last few months, and nobody's ever put it that way, but you're absolutely spot on. That's what I'm trying to achieve here. I'm almost even trying to achieve a movement, if you like, to awaken people to the possibilities that are there. And one of the themes of the book is something you talk about learning and discovering and doing this at your own pace, is one of the themes of the book is the power of compounding. And uh, my wife is a teacher, and so I mix a bit with teachers, and, and there's a question I've been asking teachers for the last two years while I was you know, working on the book and, and getting it out, is, is whether compounding is actually taught at school. And 90% of the teachers say it's on the syllabus, it's, it's there in the curriculum to be taught, but it gets left out. So we have kids coming out of school and hopefully not out of university and college, but they don't understand the power of compounding. And that is the most simple thing at the heart of what I'm talking about and how people and get ahead when, they, when they're working over the long term, is to understand the power of compounding. Working for you, that's in, in the, the money that you're investing and that the returns are getting, but also understanding the massive power of compounding that can work against you if you're paying fees that are far too high and how that just eats away and erodes your, your retirement nest egg. And I think then it shows how we are truly capable, that we can handle this, that we don't have to just uh, decide someone else is more expert and can do it for us. If, if I can achieve that for a small you know, percentage of the population that can come away from this and realize I can do, do this myself, I, am, I can be self-directed, I can take control, and by doing that, you know, it, it'll be, it can be the biggest investment decision they make of their life, even bigger than, than buying a house, because the, the, the potential difference we're talking about here is, is many hundreds of thousands of dollars. And for those in their 20s and 30s, even, even over a million to even over $2 million difference. Uh, and that's not in total. That's the difference between what they can have and what they will have. So that in itself should inspire us. So certainly young adults are going to have a huge advantage here. But I don't think we're ever too old to decide, hey, this is my money. I'm not just going to throw it away and, and give it to someone else. Absolutely not. And I try and make the point that you know, people kind of, when they're investing for retirement, they see when they retire as the end of their investing days, and then they're going to start you know, drawing, drawing down on the investment. It's absolutely not the case. The, the, the fastest growing age group now on the planet are the, are the 100 pluses. So when people retire in their late mid to late 60s or even 70, and I know it's going to going to get longer as we get older. But um, you know, we've got 30 to 35 years potentially left on the, on the planet. That's, you know, that's, that's a lot of time. And during that time, you still have to be an investor. You can't just put the money in the bank and draw down on it because it won't last. Precisely. So I think what we have the opportunity to do, I think I feel that even in this short time of conversing with you, Gary, I am feeling really energized and feel like there's just such great potential in signing up for this class, the one that we've decided to create for ourselves. Correct. Well, that's what I want to achieve. Yeah, part of the book is about trying to almost start a movement, if you like, 
and I'm, I'm not uh, on I'm not on this journey on my own. There, there are quite a few other people out there, and some high-profile people that that have come to the same conclusion as I have. And what I've just tried to do is package it in a way that maybe um, you know, will appeal to people or resonate with people in a different way to what some other people are trying to make the point. So, so hopefully it does resonate with people. I've used a conversation-style mode in the book to try and engage people, and I've had lots of good positive feedback that it keeps people engaged, so it's not this boring you know, financial stuff. I've tried to make it interesting, and, and I've had that feedback where people have actually they've been engaged right to the end of the book. So hopefully that does get achieved. It feels as though it does accomplish that. Gary Stone, you have done us an immense service. So let's mention that the book and the website uh, are actually of the same name, correct? Correct. It's blueprinttowealth.com. And on that website, people can go straight to Amazon if they want to. There's various types of, of book. There's the, there's the paperback and the hardcover and there's also a color version, so all the graphs and information in there. And on the website, there's also some resources. For instance, the investment plans that we talk about in the book, people can download those and use them as templates for themselves. And they can indeed follow Ian, the fictitious person whose plan we've invested in with our real money. And people can give us the email address and they can get updates on how that particular portfolio is, is being managed and how it's performing uh, compared to the market over the longer term. It's such an excellent way to take charge of our money and make it work for us. So, Gary Stone, thank you for doing such a great work and making us a part of it. It's my pleasure, Kate, and thank you very much for having me on your show. And now we turn to another financial expert, Beth Kobliner. Beth is a personal finance expert specializing in financial literacy, financial education, and teaching kids about money. She has a new book and joins us to discuss some of the key elements from Get a Financial Life, Personal Finance. Beth Kobliner, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Oh, great to be here, Kate. And what a gift and really such a relief to have someone with us who can give us some really important insights into money, to finances. Boy, that can feel like such a murky kind of web that we can get ourselves into. And when you're writing, get a financial life, personal finance in your 20s and 30s, you're really giving us a chance to have a good jumping off point to get off on a good footing. Mm, Yeah, I think that, you know, there's just so many challenges facing young people today when they're getting out of college with a record high student debt. Uh, They also may have some credit card debt or they may worry about getting any credit card debt because they saw what happened to their parents during the Great Recession when they got over indebted for mortgages. So they're sort of grappling with that. And plus they, you know, some of them are saving in 401ks, which is great, but many of them don't have 401ks because they're in the gig economy. They don't have sort of full-time jobs that give them pensions and health insurance. So they're going to have to figure a lot of that out themselves. And that's where having some guidance, such as with your expertise in finance, Mm. this book, which is so easy to read and covers. Oh, thank you. Well, you're welcome. This is really, you know, a great solution, I feel. One needs to, of course, take the time, devote yourself to learning this, but you really cover all of these things that you just kind of recap for us, plus more. Right. Well, I've been writing about this for 30 years, um, and I actually wrote uh, the first Get a Financial Life in 1996 when I was in my 20s, 
late 20s, and it really was important then for the Gen X generation, my generation, to learn about these basic issues that nobody was talking to them about. And today, I think in many ways, um, the millennial generation, those in their 20s and 30s, um, are more savvy in that they are not falling into credit card debt, for example, when they're in college. Um, they're beginning to save more in retirement plans like 401ks. So they are off to a pretty good start in some ways. But the problem is, for example, with the 401ks, a huge percentage of them are now borrowing against their 401k, which is really a problem because they have very long life expectancies. And although I've always said 401ks and IRAs are great long-term ways to save money because of the tax advantages, they are for retirement. And they are for long term. So that's just one example of the ways that the challenges younger people are facing when it comes to their financial lives. But I think there is a lot they can do to, you know, manage their debts, start to save, and then of course begin to invest. Well, certainly one of the huge. Uh situations that uh, students find themselves in, young people do, is because of that college debt. I mean, mm -hmm. it is huge. So right. what is your recommendation there? Well, first off, the you know average college debt uh, right now for people who graduate with, for, for young people who borrow, is $37,000. Um, that's the average. Uh, the median debt load is a little lower, $15,000. But it still is a big chunk of money if you're starting out. Um, and we know from polls that most young people say they worry about their debt pretty much all the time, you know, a lot or all of the time, according to a recent survey. So in, uh, the worry is very natural because they're not sure, are they paying it off right? So one of the big things you can do is make sure you're, you're choosing the right repayment plan um, there are a whole range of them, some new ones. One is called Pay As You Earn for federal loans, which allows you to lower your monthly payments and then actually forgives the remaining debt after 20 years. So making sure you research the options, and they're all laid out in the book, um, is the first thing that's very important. And then also if you have private loans, which can be much more expensive, uh, there are new ways to refinance them. Um, there's a website privatestudentloans.guru, for example, that can give you tips or advice on how you possibly can refinance a very high-rate private student loan. Of course, education is so important in our right. society, in our world. What about thinking of grad school, which is going to, again, incur more debt? Right. Well, grad school is sort of, a few years ago, it was kind of seen as the default. Well, the work environment, the job market isn't good, so I'll go to grad school. But unfortunately, people realized they came out, the job market wasn't all that much better, and they had a lot more debt. So I think you have to ask yourself, you have to be more practical about grad school than would, um, you know, than we used to be, in that you have to think about what advantage the degree is really giving you. Um, you know, for English majors, philosophy majors, you know, it's wonderful, wonderful areas to study, but the salary outlook and the jobs available are really minuscule. Um, there's a great source, uh, Georgetown Center on Education and the Workforce, that gives you an idea how much a grad degree in your field is worth. Um, but you have to ask, how much debt are you going to be taking on? And 
will sometimes employers, if you currently have a job, will employer chip in for you to go to work? Or can you get a tax break for learning? There's all kinds of credits. The lifetime learning credit, for example, um, is one to, just one to consider. So um, it's not that grad school can't be done, but I definitely think it takes more serious thought than it did 20 or 30 years ago. Yes, don't make it a default. Exactly. Another really fundamental area that you touch on, and of course, it's all over the news, and when it's hitting us directly, Mm. uh, we know it's really important, and that is health insurance. Yeah, yeah, that's a toughie. You know, one of the the things the millennial generation, people in their 20s and 30s, are different from previous generations, is they basically have embraced this idea of a gig economy. You know, many young people aren't working for one company, but they're freelancing and working for a variety of different companies. And, you know, that can be tricky because you want to make sure your income is enough to help you live and it could be bumpy. But the other big thing is you're not getting what we consider traditional benefits like health insurance and pension plans and sometimes other kinds of insurance. Um, And so uh, as a freelancer, you really need to make sure that you have health insurance. Um, you know, health insurance, as we all know, is something that's really a must. And when my generation was in their 20s, it was very, very common for young people to go without health insurance. And the problem with that is, I mean, the good news is most people in their 20s and 30s don't get into horrible accidents or major medical situations, but a number of them do. Um, And you need health insurance because if you don't get it from work, then you could see, first off, if you could join your parents' plan, Um, You can up to age 26 in some states. Fortunately, not Washington, your state, but in some states you can do it up to age 30. And if you can't get it that way, then you'll have to go to the health exchange and get it through that. And the bottom line is if you don't get health insurance, you won't only bankrupt yourself if you hit a major medical emergency or you have a medical accident, but you will hurt your family and your loved ones because they're going to want to have to chip in and help you. So it's very important to get health insurance in your 20s and 30s. It's tough, but it's got to be done. Yes. Just uh, need to um, bite down on that proverbial bullet and be sure, you know, to have that safety net around us. Right. And it keeps us on a good track of just really understanding where our health is and to be maintaining it. That's true. Um, And you can make sure to get it and then make sure to renew it each year. And I think the benefit of all the attention to health insurance is that, well, first off, we know many, many, many more people have it now than they did before the Affordable Health Care Act. And the important thing is doing your best, and particularly for younger people, there is that safety net of until you're 27, you can really rely on your parents' plan. You'll have to pay something for it, but it'll probably be less expensive than if you just went out to get it on your own. Precisely. So all of this and lots more important tips in this great, easy-to-read book, Get a Financial Life, Personal Finance in Your 20s and 30s. So let's take one more look at another huge area, and Mm. that is home purchasing. Yeah. You know, it's it's another tricky one because um, this generation has a lot of student loan debt. They're delaying um, many lifetime milestones, such as getting married. They're getting married later, and they're postponing maybe buying a car. And the big one is they're postponing buying a home. 
And one thing they're doing instead is moving back with their parents. A record number, one-third of young adults now live with their parents. And one of the main reasons is they have these debts they're paying off and they can't come up with the down payment, which is now basically 20%. You know, 10 years ago, there are a lot of zero-down mortgages, but those didn't work out so well for most people. So the good news is, you know, you really have to get a prudent 20%, but that's harder to get. But when my book was first published uh, 20 years ago, the average age for a first-time home buyer was 26. Today, it's 32. So there's been a huge jump in the age at which a young person buys a first home. Um, and so, you know, as people look at that calculation and as they get close, there's some really good online rent versus buy calculators. Actually, I looked at a whole bunch of them, and I think the New York Times one is um, interestingly the best. Um, just to figure out whether it makes sense to uh, consider buying. Um, but renting is really the way that a lot of young people are do- are going. And it's not a horrible thing because you really don't want to buy a home unless you think you're going to stay there for five to seven years because all of the costs associated with closing costs and selling. And so so renting is not a terrible idea and definitely more young people are doing it. And an advantage there is you are building a credit history for yourself, which is really key, isn't it? Yes, that's a great point. You know, the credit history is also, I mean, it goes back to technology. You know, years ago, people had credit reports and, you know, a bank would certainly look at them before giving you a loan or a mortgage. But today, it's all automated. And any time, almost instantaneously, if you make a late payment on your student loan, that is going to show up on your credit history, uh, and usually for seven years it stays there, and it will have an impact on that credit score. Um, And that credit score is really such an important, you know, thermometer or barometer of your financial life. And if it's high, you'll get better deals on credit cards and auto loans and mortgages. But if it's low, if it takes a dip for a variety of reasons, you're going to find it's much more expensive to do the things you want to do. I think probably the most important thing for a young person coming right out of college is to make sure not to be late on payments. You know, I think it's hard because when you're in college, I have two kids in college, and, you know, every now and then they'll say, oh, I, you know, I got an extension, but I'm handing in my paper late, or, oh, you know, and maybe they'll get a half a point off here. But it, when it comes to your credit, you know, unless there's some extenuating circumstance and a mistake was made, that late payment will show up and it'll it'll hurt you and stay on your report for many years. You really want to automate, get your bills paid automatically, you know, definitely siphoned out of your paycheck or your checking account to make sure you don't miss payments. Yes, such great words of wisdom. And I think we can really, and we can tell that the book is just filled with them because it touches on all areas of our life. We're saying finances, but really it has instances of where it's touching on everything. And so, right, right, right. My mom came up with the title, Get a Financial Life. So (laughs) it really is about your life because that really is dictated often, not always, but a lot of it is dictated by your finances. So the book, of course, available at all of our favorite book sources. Exactly. And people can find you on your website and on Twitter as well. Exactly. Yeah, I was just in Seattle, and there's some amazing independent bookstores. And also, you know, it's available online in all the obvious places. And uh, my website is bestcobliner.com. 
It's been so great speaking with you, Beth. Such words of wisdom, and I greatly appreciate the work you're doing, hoping that we're really touching hearts all over the state. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.